it is good to see you all tonight. Um, so I'm going to start with this. We're in, we're in John, as you see in your notes. I'm sure you grabbed on your way in. Uh, have you ever been in any kind of trouble, like where you got into trouble? Like, have you ever been uh, questioned by a police officer for a crime you either did commit or are accused of? Have you ever had to stand before a judge and, and answer questions about some legal matter? Uh, going back to childhood, have you ever been sent to the principal's office? All of us have know that feeling of our, our parents have cornered us and they know we've done wrong and we know we've done wrong and we were hoping it wouldn't come out and now, now it's about to. And it's the worst feeling in the world knowing that, oh my goodness, I, I'm about to face consequences for what I've done. It is a terrifying feeling to be accused. Whether you did it or not, it's a terrifying feeling. And I want you to think about that when you think about Jesus and where we are in his story. Because last week, he had just been arrested. He had been taken to the high priest's house, first the, uh, the father of the high priest, Annas, and then to Caiaphas's house. And now they're taking him to Pontius Pilate. Remember, uh, Israel is divided into, into precincts or, or, or prefectures, and uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, has control or has governance of Judea, where Jerusalem is. He doesn't live there. He lives in Caesarea, the nice Roman-style city that Herod built on the coast. But whenever there's a festival or any kind of big event, he and his detachment of troops come to Jerusalem and try to keep the peace. And so Jesus is going to stand accused before him. Now, this may be too inside baseball for you. You may not care about this kind of thing. But if you go to Jerusalem today, you will see signs that say Via Della Rosa. And it starts at this place that they think was the uh, Antonia Fortress near the Temple Mount. And then you see these signs. There's Station 1, Station 2, and, and so forth. And both guides that I've had, including the one we have now, Aviv, say that's not true. The Crusaders, when they came in and the... 10 and 11 hundreds, uh, they decided that's where it all happened. But now that we are able to look at archeology span a little more, Pilate was probably not at the Antonia Fortress, he was at Caesar's Palace. Caesar's Palace, that's a casino, isn't it? <laughs> Caesar's uh, house. Um, gotcha. I, I'm really embarrassed that y'all know that. Um, but. It's today called the Tower of David. If you go to Jerusalem, it's called the Tower of David, even though David had nothing to do with it. Herod built it. But that's where Jesus was probably tried, because that's where Herod uh, had his, uh, his palace. And so uh, that's where Pilate was, and Jesus came before him. I want you to think about how lonely Jesus must have felt at this point. All of his followers have now left. Even John and Peter, who followed him to Annas and Caiaphas' house, they're not part of this now. They have fled. It's a very lonely feeling. Jesus is in the hands of his enemies. And how he responds, you know what they say, right? You, you, you know what somebody's made of. People are like tea bags. You know what somebody's made of when you put them in hot water. How he responds in this kind of pressure is going to tell us a lot about who Jesus really is. Also, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, People were always trying to drag Jesus into political arguments. They were always trying to gauge where he stood on the issues of the day. For instance, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, there's another time when people come up to him and say, hey, did you hear about those Galileans that Pilate killed? 
they would have thought, well, you're from Galilee, or you're up on this, don't you have an opinion? And obviously, over and over again, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come? When is it going to be the time to rise up and throw, and throw over the Romans? And always he managed to parry all of these attempts to drag him into these political situations. That's not what he was there for. But now he comes face to face with the ultimate political power. Pilate represented the Roman Empire, and there had never been a force, a human force on earth as strong as that. So again, his behavior here kind of gives us some indication about how we should behave when we come into contact with uh, these political questions and these political powers and what, what is expected of us. So there's two questions for us. How do we behave when we're under, under pressure? And how do we behave in light of political questions? Let's start with verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, that brings up a question in some people's minds, because you probably know, if you've been paying attention, Jesus and his disciples ate the Lord's Supper hours ago. And we believe that was a Passover meal. In fact, John doesn't say it, but other gospels say, Lord, where do you want us to eat the Passover? Well, it's up in this upper room. So that was a Passover meal. Well, if Jesus has eaten his, why haven't they? Why haven't the priests and so forth? Because it was a particular night. And that is a problem. That is a, a question that's bothered some scholars. But the, the best way to figure that out, the best way to settle that dispute or that issue is to say, in Jerusalem, since there were pilgrims from all over the place, there wasn't room for everybody to celebrate Passover together on the same night. So they must have some people the night before and some people the night of, and maybe even some even the night after. And that's what was going on here, we believe, that it was being celebrated on more than one night just to make room. Uh, now, why did the priests refuse to enter Pilate's headquarters, the palace of Herod? Why did they think that would make them unclean? There's nothing in the law of Moses that says if you walk into the house of a Gentile, you're unclean. This is interesting. I think you'll, you'll find this interesting. They assumed that the Gentiles were guilty of bloodshed. If you've had contact with a dead body, you're unclean. And if somebody who's unclean touches somebody else who's unclean, they're unclean. That meant that the, the priests wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. Now, why did they assume that Gentiles had shed blood? Because they knew that the Romans practiced abortion and infanticide. And they said, that's what these Gentiles do. We can't go in there. We'll, we'll become unclean. Now, when we hear this, our immediate thought is, well, that's good. That's really, it's good to see that kind of principle, right? That kind of standing up against evil. And then we stop and we say, well, wait a second. These were the people who were on their way to delivering the Son of God over to death. So yes, while it is admirable, admirable to want to be ritually clean in accordance with the law of Moses. I think if in your attempt to be ritually clean in the law of Moses, you're on your way to deliver the Son of God to death, you can't consider yourself righteous. It's just another indication, another time where we see people who are trying so hard to be devout and they're missing the forest for the trees. And we need to be aware of that. In our life as Christians who seek to be devout, I think I can say all of you would have that as a goal that we don't focus on the minor things and miss the big ones. So, verse 
29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Do you think Pilate was in a good mood at this point, by the way? It's early morning. They've just come to his residence and said, uh, we can't come to see you. You have to come out to us. Just keep that in mind. So Pilate went outside of them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate, we know from Josephus, from other people who lived back then, was not a fan of the Jewish people. He hated the people he governed. And so he especially didn't like their leaders. The Sanhedrin, that, that priestly ruling class. And so when he says, why, why are you bothering me? What accusation are you bring against me? Why is this worth my time? Their answer is, their first answer essentially is, hey, trust us, he's evil. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he didn't deserve death. Well, Pilate is not having that. Now, according, I've told you before, John's account is very different. According to the other gospels, especially Luke 23, the Sanhedrin had been very strategic. At Caiaphas' house, they condemned Jesus' death for blasphemy, for claiming to be the Son of God. But that accusation wasn't going to fly with Pilate. So they shifted. They shifted their accusation to sedition, to fomenting rebellion against the empire. Now, again, that's not in John, but we know that from the other three Gospels. And then Pilate says, hey, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You see what he's doing there? He assumes that it's a matter of their own Jewish law, the law of Moses, which he knows nothing about and has no interest in. Now, this is consistent with Roman policy. You see this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, when Paul is accused by his fellow Jews of some terrible things in their eyes, and he's in Corinth, and he's brought before the judgment seat, which, by the way, still sits there in the, in the ruins of old Corinth. You can still see that judgment seat. And Gallio was the Roman uh, governor in that province. And they brought Paul to him. They said, he's done this and this and this. And Gallio said, you know, if this was a matter of Roman law, I'd be all for this. But this is a matter of your law. This is a matter of names and dates and people I don't know and, and laws that I don't care about. So be away with you. This is the Roman policy. We don't get involved in local disputes, only where it touches on the good of the empire. So the priests, the priests pretend to be good Roman subjects. Why don't you just take him and judge him yourself? And they say, oh, we could never do that. Because as you know, oh mighty Pilate, we're not allowed to execute anybody. What this man has done is, is worthy of capital punishment, but we're not allowed by, the, by, by Caesar to, uh, to put anyone to death. Of course, it doesn't stop them a few weeks from now when they stone Stephen to death in the book of Acts. Their, their principles seem to change over time, but right now they're trying to manipulate <coughs> they're trying to manipulate Pilate and they want him to they want him on their side. So that brings up a question. Why didn't they just stone Jesus to death? Because chances are if they had, especially under cover of darkness, like when they'd arrested him, the Romans wouldn't have done a thing. 
they would have chalked it up to, well, just one more dead Jew, no big deal. I think there's several reasons. They cared about their own standing among the people. They knew that Jesus was very popular. And if he's going to die, they want it to look like Rome killed him, not the Sanhedrin. Second, another good reason, another re there's no good reasons, but another reason why they wanted Pilate to do it, why they wanted Jesus to be crucified instead of them stoning him is they wanted the Jesus movement to end right here. If they stoned Jesus to death, he still got his followers. But if they declare his movement sedition, then all of his followers are now enemies of the empire. And they assume that the Romans are going to hunt them all down one by one, and that will be the end of the Jesus movement. And then there's a third reason why they probably did this. They all knew the scriptures. They knew Deuteronomy 21, 23. They knew that if Jesus was crucified instead of stoned, he was a cursed man in the eyes of God. And therefore, no good Jew would follow him. No good Jew would believe in him. And you have to admit, from a human standpoint, it's an ingenious plan. They've found a way, at least it looks like it, they found a way to stop this whole movement that they've been threatened by all this time. But this is not just a human story because their plan played right into Jesus's mission. Uh, I'll read you a couple of things. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then John 12, 32 through 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John helpfully says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew all along he would die by crucifixion, not by stoning. They were playing right into his mission to redeem us. They wanted him to be a curse in the eyes of God. That's exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted to be cursed so that we could be free. Yeah. Amen, indeed. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now here, here we see one of the dramatic moments in history when the empire of Rome comes up against the Son of God. This dialogue is very, very interesting. And we get different flavors of it from different gospel writers. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say this to you about me? It's interesting. In all four gospels, they have a lot of differences, but in all four gospels, the first question that Pilate has for Jesus is the same. It's always, are you the king of the Jews? From a Roman perspective, that's the only thing that mattered. That's the only question that mattered. I don't care about your teaching. I don't care about your miracles. I don't care about your, your mission. Do you claim to be a king? Because if so, then, then we've got some business to do. If not, then I have no, no problem with you. But Jesus' reply is not what Pilate expects him. He expects him to say, oh, no, no, not me, or to be foolish enough to claim it. But Jesus essentially says, well, are you asking because you're seeking salvation? Or are you just playing the part of an earthly judge? Because that's going to determine the course of our conversation. And Pilate is annoyed with this. He's not used to his questions not being answered. And his, his second question uh, is, am I a Jew? In verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So you hear him say, listen, I don't, I'm not one of your people. 
I don't care whether you claim to be a Messiah or a Savior. That's none of my business. I'm not interested in any of that. I want to know. Your own people want you dead. What did you do that was so terrible? So here's Jesus' reply. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So his reply is essentially, if you're thinking in terms of human government and power, you're missing the point. That's not what I'm here to do. If I wanted that, I could have that. He says, you've, and here's where you have to understand. Pilate didn't know much about Jesus, but I'm sure by this point he'd heard of him and he'd heard the kinds of messages that Jesus was teaching. It was his business to know these kinds of things. When there's a movement, thousands of people going to hear a man speak and you're the governor of that region, you're gonna know. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, do I sound like, when I go out and teach my followers, do I sound like somebody who's trying to stir up a rebellion? When I'm saying things like, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you and turn the other cheek? If I wanted that, I could do it. I could stir them up and they would fight for me, but I don't want that. So Pilate's third question, look at him in verse 17. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. It's his wife saying, aha, here's the smoking gun. You do claim to be a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus doesn't really answer the question. He says, you say that I'm a king. In a way, his answer is yes and no. Yes, I am a king. No, I'm not the kind of king you think. Yes, I am a king, but no, I'm not here to forcibly rule anybody. He, he says, I came to bear witness to the truth. He's not talking about his teachings, by the way. Jesus is not saying, I have come to deliver a message to the people of this world and share, share with them what God is really like. That's not what he means. We know this because of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth and the life. I have come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus didn't come to teach us about God. Jesus came to be our savior. Now, when Pilate says, what is truth? That is one of the mysterious statements in all of human history and, and preachers and scholars and authors have written volumes and reams and Tried, trying to speculate on this. Oh, was he saying, uh, I, I sure wish I knew the truth about this case? Was he saying, uh, yes, tell me more about truth? I don't think so. Because if he was asking a question, a real question, Jesus would have answered it. I think he was dismissing Jesus. I think he was saying, truth, what's that? Okay, we're done here. Uh, you're obviously not going to tell me what I want to hear. Well, that's what Pilate is doing here, I believe. But... Notice what comes next. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. That word robber doesn't mean he held people up at spear point. It's a word that means insurrectionist, revolutionary, murderer. He was a cutthroat, perhaps one of the zealots. 
brings up a good question. Why did Pilate seek to set Jesus free? Everything we know about Pilate says he didn't care about Jews. He didn't care about human life. Why not just execute him and get it over with, get this off of his desk? Well, there are several possible reasons. There's two at least. Number one, he knew this man was innocent. We can tell that from the scriptures. We know that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. And for all their flaws, the Romans were pretty diligent about following the law and, and punishing the guilty and, and setting free the innocent. But we also know that he knew that the Sanhedrin were trying to manipulate him, and he did not want to be manipulated. So whatever they want, he's going to want to do the opposite. Probably both of those things are at play here. So he tries a strategy. He tries a, a, what he thinks is a clever strategy. The custom of setting free a prisoner at Passover is something that's not mentioned in any other literature. So scholars have said, oh, well, the gospel writers made it up. Well, we know the gospel writers don't make anything up. But maybe the explanation for why we don't see this in Josephus or any of the other histories back then is maybe it was something that only happened occasionally. Maybe it was something, we do have documentation that it happened when the Maccabees were in charge a hundred years before. And maybe what Pilate's doing here, this is just speculation. Maybe he's saying, hey, I hear there's an old tradition y'all have where the ruler used to set a prisoner free at Passover. I think I'll revive that now. Now here's Jesus and here's this bloody cutthroat. Who do you want? Do you want the king of the Jews or do you want this guy who's uh, a psycho? Uh, which one? Pilate's flaw here in thinking is he's thinking like a Roman and not like a Jew. As a Roman, he's thinking, I wouldn't want this psychotic murderer out on the streets. Romans were all about peace and order. But for the Jews who were gathered there, some of whom probably showed up to beg for Barabbas to be released in, in the first place. For the Jews who showed up there, they're thinking, well, you know, peace and love from Jesus hasn't gotten us anything but cutting a few Roman throats sounds pretty good to us. Give us Barabbas. See, Pilate tried to outsmart the Sanhedrin, and he miscalculated. And so next week we'll see uh, as they take Jesus from there to the cross. But we're back to our first two questions that I started with. What do we learn about Jesus from this? And Jesus is... Stripped of all of his dignity, all of his uh, friends and his following, he's all by himself. You can be a big man when there's a bunch of people cheering you on, but when it's just you under the white hot spotlight and the power of the government is, is bearing down on you, you might crater and become somebody very different. But that doesn't happen to Jesus here. Notice something about Jesus in this position, just like before, Pi, just like before Caiaphas and Annas, he never tries to defend himself. He never tries to save his own life. Instead, he seems to be trying to reach Pilate. Are you asking me because you want to believe in me? He's trying to reason with this man. He cares about this man's soul. Think about that. He cares about the soul of the man who he knows is about to put him to death. That tells you everything you really need to know about Jesus. And once you know that about Jesus, you know that about God because Jesus is God in human flesh. The if you only had if you could only communicate one thing to people about God, the God of the scriptures, the God who is real, you would just have to say he loves 
us more than his own life. If you could only say one thing, that would be it. He loves us more than his own life. He'd rather die for you than live without you. I don't think many people understand that about God. And yet it's right here before us in the Gospels. So now what do we learn about the intersection of Christianity and political power? I want to say first off, political power is definitely not off limits for Christians. In the first three centuries of Christianity, you didn't find Christians who were officers in the army or, or senators in the, in, the in the Roman government. That just didn't happen. The Christianity spread among the underclass, people who didn't have power. And then everything changed when uh, Constantine became emperor and he, he became a Christian and he made Christianity legal and then it became the official religion of the empire and that changed everything. But with all that said, you look at Romans 13, 1 through 7, and Paul talks about the government is a good thing. Whether it's, whether it's a government that is people we like or people we don't like, it's something God is using. God, God uses, as he calls it, the sword. That's the police. That's the army. That's, uh, you know, that's the FBI. That's whoever. He uses the sword to punish evil. If you don't want the government to mess with you, don't do evil, and you should be okay, is essentially what Romans is telling us. That is a passage, among others, but especially that one that says, there's nothing wrong with Christians wielding political, military uh, power, because we can use it for good. That is a good thing, but we have to recognize its limits. So that's the first point we see in Jesus here. We need to recognize the limits of political power. Political power is good. It cannot be our salvation. And anytime we think of it as our salvation, we get into trouble. Again, Jesus could have become king by force. Think about, y'all may not know this, but uh, in, the, in the Jewish revolt that happened 40 years after Jesus, so Jesus passed away, died sometime around 30 AD. The Jewish revolt happened around 70 AD. The Jews revolted against Rome. And they, they built an extra wall around Jerusalem. They fought tooth and nail. And it took the, the Roman legions years to defeat them. And they may have even won if they weren't fighting amongst themselves. Jesus could have called on his followers. And if he had to, to bear the sword, if he had, it would have spread quickly. People then were looking for, us, for a, a warlike Messiah. There would have been there would have been tremendous bloodshed. But Jesus could have done that. And if he had, let's just imagine that. Let's imagine Jesus says, the Romans are evil, which they were. This system is unjust, which it was. They're mistreating my people, which they were. From a human standpoint, he was fully justified. If he had done that, and if he had overthrown Rome, it'd be seen as one of the greatest military victories in history. It'd be seen as this incredible thing that happened in world history, and we'd still be lost. You understand that? Jesus becomes king of Jerusalem in AD 30. We're still lost. Jesus did not come to do that. That's the limits of political power. You can do a lot of good. You can, you can, uh, you can enhance human rights. You can stop abuses. You can exalt righteousness. You can punish evil. You can't save a human soul by any law you ever perpetrate, by any, uh, by any battle you win. When he was asked if he was king, Jesus said yes and no. Part of, part of it is Jesus is saying, listen, 
I'm raising up a new kingdom. By the way, I forgot to say this. If you pay attention, all four gospels, the kingdom of God is Jesus's main topic in most of his teaching. The kingdom of God. I am bringing a new kingdom into the world. In my kingdom, things are going to be different. That's, that's part of the point of the miracles. Someday when I'm king, there won't be blind people and lame people and people who can't hear and people uh, who can't walk and people who die early and, and death will be abolished. But it was also about, in my kingdom, we love our enemies. In my kingdom, uh, we pray for those who hate us. In my kingdom, uh, we exalt righteousness. We love one another. That's what Jesus was teaching. And he knew as my kingdom spreads, it's going to have political ramifications. And it did when you look through history. The idea that children had rights, that children were special, that we should take care as a society, we should have schools that educate children and get them ready for life. That was unheard of before Christianity came along. The idea that we should have places, public places where people could go and get medical care like hospitals, that came out of Christianity. The idea that women were actually real human beings and weren't just baby-making machines and, and that they were created by God in His image and they had rights and they had value, that came from Christianity. At the same time, the idea that you can't just go and have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. The idea that marriage is uh, a particular institution that is to be treasured, that is to be guarded, that is between one man and one woman for life, that also came from Christianity. And I could go on and on and on. So many political issues come out of the kingdom of God, and yet none of those things were accomplished through military force or winning elections. Doesn't mean, again, Romans 13, the military has a purpose, police force has a purpose, human rulers have a purpose in the eyes of God, but they also have limits. If our goal is to gain military power, we're settling short, we're falling short. I'll just, I'll just add this and then I'm done with that point. Tim Keller pointed out something I found interesting. He said, you look at all the, the, all the continents, aside from Antarctica, I don't, know, I don't know how many Christians live in Antarctica, but uh, of all the continents, Christianity is growing or holding its own in all, every continent on earth except one. The one where it's not is Europe. And in North America, it's kind of holding its own. Uh, in Asia, it's spreading like wildfire. Europe, I'm, I'm sorry, Africa, it's going crazy. And in South America, it's exploding. But in Europe, it's declining and has been for years. He said, what is Europe? What's different about Europe than all the others? He said, Europe is the one continent where Christianity tried to take control of the state and tried to create state churches where if you're born in England, you're part of the Church of England. If you're born in France, you're part of the Church of France. You just automatically, it doesn't work. We want it to work that way. Boy, it'd be so good if we could just all band together and elect a good Christian man and then he'd put in Christian laws and everybody would act like Christians. And they'd still be lost. They'd still be lost. If you could force them to do everything the Bible says, but they didn't know Jesus, they'd still be lost. There are limits to political power. Number two, we learn from Jesus, we need to avoid the temptation of political power. Again, not saying Christians shouldn't be involved in the process. We should, but we should avoid deifying it. Uh, there are four main characters in this story. This story that we just read, three out of the four seem to get exactly what they wanted through force. So you got Pilate, 
Jesus confronts him and says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Don't you want to know me? Pilate says, ah, what is truth? He got what he wanted. All he cared about is, are you a threat to Roman power? He got Jesus off of his desk. He avoided a riot in Jerusalem. He could go home at the end of that day and think, I've done my job. The Sanhedrin are the second main character. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power. That's the main reason they wanted him dead. And their plan worked flawlessly right up until Sunday morning. Boy, they were just patting themselves on the back until they heard people running through the streets saying he's alive. And then you've got the crowd. The crowd chose Barabbas. They chose the man of violence over the man of love. And in the end, that's one thing you can count on. The mob will always choose Barabbas. That's why we need to be careful. We need to be careful what movement we're a part of because the mob is always going to choose Barabbas over Jesus. You may think you're on the side of righteousness, but in, when you're in the midst of a, of a mob that feels like it's uh, righteously indignant, they're probably not. It's just so much easier to choose the way of power, the way of force, the way of violence, than it is to choose the way of love and sacrifice. See, the fourth person in the story is the only one who actually really did win. The others got what they wanted in the short term, but Jesus got what he actually wanted in the eternal sense. Jesus came to die for our sins, and that's exactly what he did. And nothing stopped him. And the lesson is that scheming and strategizing to get our way may work in the short run, but only the way of sacrificial love wins out in the end. Only the way of putting others ahead of ourselves. And that should be... That should be the standard we hold ourselves to in our political engagement is, am I just doing this because it's good for me? Or am I doing this because it's good for others? Am I lifting up the fallen? Am I taking care of my neighbor? Am I, am I, am I voting for someone with integrity in their personal life, but also someone who is actually out to make the world a better place and not just get elected? That's a hard one these days. Very, very hard one, but we should demand it. And, and that's about as political as I'm going to get. But it is a great, great story to, to know what Jesus did for us. And I would like to pray for us right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are so good. And every time humans try to force their way, you're always three steps ahead of us. And Lord, I thank you that you knew how to redeem us. And nothing was going to stop you from that redemption. Lord, I thank you that while the nations rage, the Lord in heaven laughs. I pray, Lord, that we would have the kind of confidence in you that even when things go against us, as they so often do these days, we would have peace in our hearts and hope that in the end you win. Lord, I thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. In your son's name, in your perfect name, we pray. Amen.